you are listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 7, The East Area Rapist, Part 6. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. May 17, 1977. Death the next victim? East Area Rapist Attacks Number 23. The East Area Rapist attacked his 23rd victim this morning in a Del Deo home and said he would kill his next two victims, sheriff deputies reported. The rapist told his victim and her husband he would kill the next time he strikes, but he gave conflicting reasons for the threats, deputies said. He told the woman he would kill if there was any press coverage of this morning's attack, deputies said. But he told her husband he would kill if there was no press coverage of the incident. The threats were unofficially considered bravado by some officers involved in the investigation, although the sheriff's office at first asked local news organizations not to report today's attack. As deputies recounted the incident, the ski masked rapist entered a home off American River Drive near Jacobs Lane about 1.30 a.m. and awakened the couple in their bedroom. At gunpoint, he forced a woman in her mid-twenties to tie up her husband and then led the woman to another part of the house, deputies said. The rapist stayed in the home about an hour and a half but didn't awaken the couple's children or an adult guest. During the incident, he spoke in a low voice that alternated in pitch and sometimes used a southern accent, said Bill Miller, a sheriff's spokesman. Deputies released a composite sketch of the suspect after today's attack by piecing together bits of a description gathered from the 23 women the man has attacked since October of 1975. In most of his earlier attacks, the rapist entered homes where women were home either alone or with small children. But five of his most recent attacks, four in the past two weeks alone, have involved couples. The rapist attacked about 4 a.m. Saturday after confronting a couple in the bedroom of their home in the vicinity of Greenback Lane and Birdcage Street. May 20th, 1977. CBers cautioned. Volunteer patrols could hamper rapist search. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Office today asked a group of citizens banned radio buffs not to conduct planned patrols in search of the East Area Rapist. I requested that they not patrol the area because we'd rather not have them there, said Undersheriff Dick Phillips. I'm not doubting their good intent but they could be a hindrance instead of an assistance. In other developments today, the reward posted for the rapist grew to $25,000. When the B Secret Witness Program raised its offer at the request of the Sheriff's Department from $5,000 to $15,000, and a Sacramento dentist offered another $10,000. Phillips said that the Sheriff's Office doubts the value of having volunteers openly attempt to find a man who has broken into about two dozen homes in the area, raped 23 women, overcome six men, terrorized several children, and escaped undetected. They won't know what they're looking for, and just driving up and down the street is not going to stop this guy, Phillips said. The rapist, who has been termed a probable paranoid schizophrenic, might be tempted to attack again just to prove his skills to the volunteers, Phillips said. In addition, the sheriff's office is concerned about the possibility of accidental shootings in the area. A large number of people are in a state of near panic, Phillips said, and an influx of strangers isn't going to help that. The Sacramento dentist, who is organizing the CB patrols, however, said his group has plans to continue to patrol the east area and build a larger patrol force. We intend to help law enforcement not hinder it, said dentist James Gilmartin. We have every reason to believe the success of the patrol depends on having enough people to catch this guy going in and out of our house. Gilmartin said he understands that the police concerns, but doesn't consider them hostile. The group had 10 persons patrolling the east area Thursday night in a pilot run, Gilmartin said. They hope to get into full operation of the planned patrol with several thousand of volunteers as soon as they finish the organizational chores, he said. The project is called East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrol and has rented an answering service at 488-8855. 
Gilmartin also posted a $10,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the rapist. The Bee's Secret Witness Program is asking possible informants to phone privately 442-6221. Note, will the witness known as Agnes Park please call? The Bee raised the reward after Chief Sheriff's Deputy Fred Reese asked for an increase in hope that we will bring out information we need to solve these terrible crimes. We have received a great many calls and have numerous leads to check out, but so far the solution is not in sight. Someone out there must know who this man is and we are trying to reach that person. We hope this is the answer. The case was added to the secret witness reward list last November 4th when it was first revealed the rapist was at work. He had committed 8 rapes at the time and has committed 15 others since. The total reward for the East Area Rapist could jump to $40,000 Monday when County Supervisor Pat Malarkey visits the Board of Supervisors to allocate $15,000 to add to the Bees Reward Fund. Malarkey also said that he will ask the supervisors to allocate $100,000 to the Sheriff's Department overtime budget because it is nearly depleted for the fiscal year, which ends June 30th. Deputies have been working overtime for compensatory time off, and that could cause a serious manpower problem down the line when the time is taken, Malarkey said. The overtime budget has been exhausted for several reasons, Phillips said. The East Area Rapist investigation is only part of the explanation, he said. Many deputies and some California Highway Patrolmen have been working overtime on their rape investigations as volunteers asking neither money nor time for their extra effort, said Sheriff's spokesman Bill Miller. Deputies are continuing to sort through some 3,000 tips they've received in the case since the rapist's last attack early Tuesday, Miller said. During the attack, the rapist told a Del Deo woman and her husband that he will kill the next two victims after the incident. Sheriff's deputies released an artist's sketch of the rapist and a psychiatric profile of him. The rapist has been described as a white man between the ages of 19 and 30 with an athletic build. His eyes are described as blue to hazel. His hair is dirty blonde to brown, about collar length. It is unknown whether he has facial hair. The rapist has worn a variety of ski masks during his attacks. None of his victims have seen his complete face, deputies said. The information prompted the avalanche of telephone tips, which were taken by a total of 20 deputies on overtime, Miller said. Many of the callers named possible suspects, but most of the calls were worthless, he said. A lot were just out of the ballpark. Things like, I saw a strange guy in a restaurant a month ago and you'd better find him, Miller said. But a lot of people who called feel very strongly that they found the guy for this. It'll take a lot of time for us to follow up. Deputies estimated about 15% of the 3,000 calls contained worthwhile information, Miller said. May 22, 1977. $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the East Area Rapist. If information is provided by a law enforcement member, the reward will be donated to the appropriate widow's benevolent fund. East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrol, call EARS Patrol, 488-8855. Donors, Dr. Gil Martin, Dental Group. May 23, 1977. $100,000 okayed for overtime pay in East Area Rapist Hunt. The Board of Supervisors today voted on an extra $100,000 to the Sheriff's Department to help finance overtime for deputies in the search for the East Area Rapist. However, the Board delayed until Wednesday a proposal for the county-appropriate $15,000 to the B's Secret Witness Program as an additional reward for information leading to the arrest of the rapist, who has struck 23 times in the last 19 months. Supervisor Pat Malarkey had proposed both appropriations, although neither had been requested by Sheriff Dwayne Lowe. Malarkey said deputies will only receive compensating time off for the hundreds of hours that they have put in so far in the search for the rapist. He pointed out that the sheriff's budget did not currently have enough funds to pay cash overtime to the deputies. Chief Deputy Fred Reese told the board that while his department had not requested the money, it would be helpful. He said officers already have put in 4,896 hours of volunteer time in the search for the rapist, that if paid, 
for would cost about $77,000. He said the deputies are becoming more reluctant to volunteer because of the substantial amount of time that they have given and the cash overtime would be an incentive. Reese said Malarkey had contacted him about the desirability of putting money into the secret witness program, and he had expressed doubt that it would do much good. Rather, Reese said he had told Malarkey that the cash for overtime might be more effective. Board Chairman Fred Wade noted that this, as recently as April 12th, Lowe had told the county executive that he had no serious financial problems in his budget. However, Wade agreed to go along with the 100000 appropriation. But Wade said that he had doubts about the $15,000 to the secret witness program because of the nature of the crime. He expressed doubt that there would be witnesses because of the nature of the rapist's loner activities. There's also substantial secret witness reward already advertised with special extra money targeted for the rapist's identity, Wade said. The allocation would be political gesture, but I doubt that it honestly would contribute to the apprehension and conviction of his particular menace to our community. I do not favor the allocation. Malarkey agreed to continue the matter until Wednesday to find out whether the $15,000 would revert to the county should it not be rewarded to the specific case of the rapist. The East Area Rapist, who has attacked 23 women in their homes in the past 19 months, has stepped up the frequency of his boldness of his attacks. His last six attacks, four of which have occurred since the first of the month, have involved couples that he has overpowered. The Rapist, described as a probable paranoid schizophrenic by sheriff's deputies, has confronted the victims with a large caliber pistol. He wears a ski mask and he usually broken into the homes he has terrorized by dismantling sliding glass doors. The Beast Secret Witness Program raised the reward for the information leading to the capture and conviction of the rapist to $15,000 Friday. Another $10,000 reward has been posted by a Sacramento dentist, James Gilmartin. May 25, 1977. Anti-Rapist Step. SMUD Backyard Lights Offer Home Protection. One form of protection against the East Area Rapist or burglars and peeping toms is a bright backyard security light. If there is a power pole in or near your backyard, chances are... The Sacramento Municipal Utility District can attach a 175-watt mercury vapor light and point it in your yard. A photoelectric cell makes sure the light only operates from dusk to dawn. As of the end of April, 3,504 customers in SMUD service area had such lights. Although the service had been offered for years, SMUD spokesman Jeff Marks said inquiries have increased in the last few weeks. We think it could be because of the recent thrust of publicity about the rapist and his latest attacks and numerous hardware ads for security equipment such as locks and lights, said Marks. The only hang-up, said Marks, is that in more recently developed subdivisions, electric service is underground. After a homeowner calls SMUD, it sends a representative to see if there is a nearby power pole with the correct voltage wires. In the event the proposed light draws objections from neighbors, special light shields would be specified in the installation diagram. Then an installer does the job. The monthly charge of $4.50 is billed separately from regular utility bills. There is no installation charge. Although SMUD is an energy-saving mood, security lighting comes during off-peak hours, Marks pointed out. We feel the security benefit outweighs the fact energy is being used, he said. Sheriff spokesman William Miller agrees. Even during the 1973-1974 energy crisis, he recalled, we continue to recommend that people leave on security lights. No criminal wants to operate where there is a lot of light, he said. Obviously, a guy can do more harm under cover of darkness.
The calendar flipped from 1977 to 1978. The East Area Rapist was still at large and the victims were now well into the double digits. The area of Sacramento was under attack, but no one could seem to stop him. Dogs couldn't track him. Witnesses couldn't quite describe him beyond a very generic 5'8 to 5'10, thin to medium build, light brown or dark blonde hair, and of course, a small penis. The frequency of attacks were intensifying. Locks and guns were flying off the shelves at a high rate. Investigators and authorities on edge. Where would he strike next? Authorities couldn't even figure out what kind of car he had. Was it a green VW, a white Datsun, a green Chevy? Their leads were as clear as mud. He is still taunting victims from previous attacks by calling them and harassing them. As heard in the trailer, I'm gonna kill you is a call recorded by victim number one. Also, on January 6th, 1978, a volunteer for the contact counseling service answered a call from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist who said, I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. After a short conversation, the caller said, I believe you are tracing this call, and hung up. Attack number 29 and 30. January 28, 1978. Carmichael. College View Way. A loud thud startled a female as she was fast asleep. She peeked out her bedroom window and didn't see anything. A voice was heard from behind. Get all of your money or I'll kill you. The voice hissed through clenched teeth in a low growling whisper. The beam of the intruder's flashlight blinded her. She grabbed some money she had hidden away under a pitcher on the headboard of her bed. She handed the man her money. Go wake up your sister. Don't make a noise or look at me. He ushered the girl towards the bedroom door. The girl walked past the intruder and into her sister's room. The man was now in the other room with both teenage girls. The first sister woke up the second sister, where she saw a man standing in the room, and he said to her, Don't look at me. You look at me and I will kill you. Get your money. The second sister rose up from her bed and got into her closet, where she kept her money. She handed it over to the perpetrator. He then ordered both teens onto their stomachs on the bed. Don't look at me. Get on the bed, on your stomachs, he repeated. The two females were now bound, and the older of the two girls, 15, had a pillow put over her head. If you move, I'll slit your throats and slip away into the fog. What time will your parents be home? The eldest girl responded, midnight. The intruder replied, don't lie or I'll kill you, and when they get home, I'll kill them too. He put his knife to the youngest sister's neck and also pushed it against the neck of the eldest, saying nothing. The intruder began ransacking the home as usual, slamming doors, opening cabinets, and rummaging through belongings. The intruder returned to the two girls. The bed creaked as he climbed on. He straddled the 15-year-old girl, placing his penis into her bound hands. It was lubricated. He was not fully erect at this point. He straddled the 14-year-old, doing the same thing. He pulled the 14-year-old onto the floor, placing a sweater over her face, and then raped her. She screamed in agony from the pain to which the ear told her to shut up. He then got up and flipped the 15-year-old girl over onto her back and put a pillow over her face. Spread your legs. Relax, he told her. He got off of the bed after he finished raping her. Don't talk to each other or I'll kill you. Then he left the room. The two girls could hear him talking in a high-pitched voice like a child. Then he came back to the room. Where's your parents' money, he hissed. On my parents' dresser, the eldest responded. Then he checked their room and returned again relatively fast. It's not there, he said. He began leaving the room and angrily said to himself, I don't want to do this anymore. She's making me do it. Then he was gone. The parents arrived home within about 15 minutes of the year leaving the scene. They called police around 11.53 p.m. and the police arrived around 12 midnight. They found the front door had been kicked in and knocked off the hinges. After further questioning, the sisters said he didn't stay in the home very long. They also found that two small photos of the youngest sister were missing and so were 
so were two small homemade earrings from the older sister's jewelry box. The only other things missing was a small amount of money that was missing. The intruder was described as 5'9", 150 pounds, wearing a dark mask and gloves. They said his penis was small and did not seem to be fully aroused. In the weeks leading up to the attack, the girls reported a man with a strange voice calling their home and asking for their mother. So uh, when you start looking at these attacks now, um, you know, these are, we label them attacks instead of probably victims might be a better word, but um, attacks 29 and, and 30 here. And the one thing that I noticed is, you know, during that first attack, when he's tapping the knife in the doorway to wake the woman up, he has no pants on and he's fully aroused and ready to rape this woman. But by now, he's done this so many times and there's been reports of so many times where he doesn't seem to be fully aroused anymore. It's almost like it, it's just not doing it for him anymore. Like that path of escalation, you're like, you can kind of tell it, it's not. It's not fulfilling that need that he has to do these things. Whatever's making him do this, what drives him to do this, it's just not being satisfied at this point. Like you can start to kind of see that, you know, around now. Yeah, and do you think he's just becoming disinterested in what he's doing? He's done it so many times now that it's just, like you said, it's not doing it for him. He's just losing interest in these attacks. It's becoming, you know, like a broken record. Same thing over and over again and just not getting him excited whatsoever. Yeah, I definitely think that. I think that he's done it so many times successfully without being caught, and whatever was driving him is now, to me, it seems like at this point in the timeline that he's starting to kind of not, he's just kind of going through the motions almost in a way. Like, I think he still enjoys the, like, stalking, the prowling, like, the initial terror part of this, but I I don't think the the rape part of these attacks anymore is truly getting him off anymore. Like, I, I just don't think he's enjoying it like he he was, you know, as sick as that is to say. Like, I just don't think he's enjoying what, what he's doing at this point. I think he's either he's feeling guilt and remorse for what he's doing or he needs to do something more. Like, he needs to figure out something else to get his jollies. Right. Almost like he's just getting you know, simply bored of what he's doing. I mean, it's po- it's possible. We're up to 29 and 30. The victim's 29 and 30, two teenage girls. So, yeah, and I mean, that's the other part of this. These girls are young, 14 and 15 years old. Like, he's not afraid to attack these young teenage girls, you know, and that's pretty disgusting. Yeah, and I, I think he really, going back to that domineering mother thing that we've brought up a couple of times, I you I think that when he keeps saying she's making me do it, I I think there's a lot of pent up frustration towards his mother. You know, I don't, you know, we I haven't read any details about his, you know, upbringing or his parents or whatever, but it, it certainly aligns with that being the case why he keeps saying he he crying out to mommy, mommy, I, I don't want to do it anymore. She's making me do it. It's weird. I think that that could be right, but I think he's staging I think the newspapers, as you hear in the trailer, they talk a lot about a paranoid schizophrenic in his profile, and I think he's playing that up in order to play to the description of him in the papers, because perhaps he is not a paranoid schizophrenic and or doesn't think he's a paranoid schizophrenic, so he starts playing these games so that the people in his day-to-day life that know him aren't putting two and two together. You know, he's playing more to, okay, the newspaper has me wrong. The police have me wrong. 
So I'm going to play to that because that throws them off my scent as a just normal, average, day-to-day guy. You're not going to figure me out because your description's so far gone. So I'll play to this description that you're giving because you'll be going down that trail for a long time while I'm over here on the other side just hanging out, enjoying life. Right. And again, I hate to bring this up, but we're, we're back to the, even from the teenage girl's perspective, we're back to the small penis description. and. I do have a personal story to share, and I'm wondering if it kind of aligns to some of the description that we've given to this guy, but it's a personal story and the fact that I have family, you know, in the South, and there was an acquaintance of the family. Uh, This is probably, this is a story that my mom relayed to me, and I'm not sure why she felt inclined to share this with me (laughs) years ago, but. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to make an attempt to do this and not discrediting anything we're telling in the story here, but this is something I got to, I got to get off my chest because I've been holding this for a couple weeks. This family acquaintance, he was a, I think he was a teenage guy at the time. I think he might've been 19, 20 years old, but he had married this girl through approval of her parents at the time. And I believe she might've been 15 or 16. Now keep in mind down South, they don't really frown upon that because I think there's still some statutes in some of those states where they have common law marriages. But you know, I won't I won't beat around the bush here too much. Th- this whole thing about this guy having small penis, or I don't know if the true medical term is micro penis. It's starting to sound that way. My mom had told me that this couple had been married about a year, and the female was having all kinds of problems. You know, like having stomach pain and this and that. She thought she was pregnant. And so she went to the doctor to get, you know, examined to make sure, you know, she wasn't in fact pregnant, you know, at that young age. This was her legal husband, mind you. This wasn't, there wasn't anything shady going on here. But what had happened when she went to the doctor, come to find out, this guy was so under-endowed, he had not even pierced this girl's hymen. (laughs) Oh my God. She thought she was pregnant, but yet from after a doctor's examination, she was still a virgin. How that's even possible? But the reason I wanted to, to tell that story, I don't want to laugh about it too much because I don't want to discredit the story we're telling about these attacks and stuff is, is there a correlation to this high-pitched voice and this guy's little dick? <laughs> <laughs> because she said this guy also had a very high-pitched voice, and I don't know why <laughs> why that, that story came to mind. But yeah, like I said, my mom told me this. I mean, I was an adult at the time, but she's like, this is just the weirdest thing. <laughs> I don't even remember what got us on the conversation, but... Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. I don't know. Uh, that story's crazy, but, you know, it does... I mean, as silly as it is, and, I mean, laughing at a guy with a tiny wiener is kind of funny, but, you know, it does apply in the sense that this man's always described as having a tiny penis, and there are instances where rape occurs, but they, but, you know, they don't officially call it rape because they, you know, the hymen's still intact on some of these young women. And, um, you know, it, it does apply that way. And that's just kind of proof of like in a consensual manner, you know, you could still have some of these situations happen and it's not necessarily just like this guy didn't get fully erect during his attacks or whatever. It's just maybe he was too under endowed to, to do the job. Yeah. I don't want to get, I don't want to go down in the deep dive of the health class, but is it a lack of testosterone? Is that what makes his voice high? Are they all contributing factors? Is that part of his schizophrenic, you know, his paranoia, his under-endowment? 
Oh, I bet you. Yeah, I'm sure he's probably dealt with some embarrassment in his life, and uh, whether it's with women, you know, or whatever, or from his family or something that you know kind of warped him a bit to get to this point. You know, if you were like super under endowed, like you probably would just constantly be like worried about that for some reason. I don't. I don't know why, but it's okay for men to be humiliated over the size of their Johnson, you know, but you can't make fun of a woman at all, you know, and a man ties his whole self-worth to the size of his dong, it seems like. And, uh, you know, it's just, it is interesting in that way, like the way that men operate in that regard, you know? And so it's, uh, it's kind of interesting, especially like, you know, putting it through the lens of 2019, you know, you hear, you know, if you, you can't, shame anybody for anything anymore except for a guy with a tiny pecker you're allowed to make fun of him that's okay we laugh at that still maybe that's coming to an end soon but i doubt it i mean there's <laughs> there's so many commercials for male enhancement and this and that and it's it's primetime commercials now that used to be a taboo thing where you know you're up late at night watching tv and all of a sudden you see one of the commercials you chuckle at it i don't want to keep on this <laughs> conversation because i don't want to feel like we're talking about dongs all morning but not my topic of choice (laughs) sure sure uh yeah but you know i mean i think you do make a point though in telling that story and then you know tying it back to the psychology of this perpetrator i don't i don't think that you you know when you say this story i don't think it's necessarily something that's completely out of bounds it does tie back to you know what we're talking about and, and the way that this man operates and some of those things but yeah i i do find it interesting however we will move on February 2nd, 1978, Rancho Cordova, La Alegria Drive. It was a nice February evening in Rancho Cordova when the young couple, Brian and Katie Maggiore, were out walking their dog, Thumper. Brian was a sergeant in the Air Force and had been transferred from his station in Alaska to Mather Air Force Base. His wife, Katie, had been living in Fresno at the time until Brian was relocated and then moved to an apartment complex in Rancho Cordova together, off-site from the Air Force Base. As the couple was out strolling along with their dog, they did not realize that they were in the epicenter of an area that was being stalked by the notorious East Area Rapist. According to reports collected by Richard Shelby, the events that followed are purely based off of witness statements. Apparently, Thumper, their dog, took off running, off lead. Brian and Katie chased after the dog and entered into a backyard, and possibly surprised a prowler. The prowler chased after Brian and Katie with a gun in hand. A 10-year-old boy heard some commotion and looked out his second-story window as the Majoris sprinted into his yard. A gust of wind had knocked over a section of fence in his yard. Through that knockdown section of fence, the Majoris came through it, behind them, the gun-toting prowler. Brian made it to the patio before being shot once in the chest, which brought him to the ground. The prowler then shot him again in the neck to ensure he was dead. His attention then turned to Katie. She began to flee around the east side of the home where the suspect began shooting in her direction missing several times. He eventually caught up to her near a gate and fired a single gunshot into her head. The suspect then hopped the gate and took off. A neighbor next door, hearing the commotion, came out of his garage to see what was going on and came face to face with the prowler. The murderer took off running, changing directions two or three times. Some suspect the neighbor was not shot simply because the prowler was out of ammo. A few blocks from the crime scene, a woman reportedly saw a man walking quickly down the street, staying close to the shrubbery. As a car approached him, he hopped behind a tree, keeping himself out of sight until the car had passed. It is also important to note it was around 9.30 p.m. in the middle of winter, so it was pretty dark when all of this unfolded. 
The woman who noticed the man said that he had slightly shielded his face with his jacket and remarked to her, Guess I must be trespassing. He was wearing a World War II era bomber jacket with the 320th Bomb Group insignia patch on it. As officers arrived and cordoned off the street, Officer Patty Butler noticed a folded $5 bill near the curb. She radioed back to the officer that she was replacing at the post and asked him if he had noticed anything in that location, to which the officer responded, A black over orange Fiat Roadster. The Fiat matched the description of a vehicle near an ear assault a few months prior. When the investigators arrive, they find Brian Majori's body lying in the backyard, shot in the chest and back of the neck. Over by the side gate, Katie Majori's body is found. She was shot in the head. A bloody footprint was found in the driveway. A bullet did go into the back patio window and through the inside of the home into a wall of the family that lived there. The man that lived in the home reported that the bullet missed him by a few inches and he and his wife hit the ground until the chaos had ended. The Majori's dog Thumper was found shivering in a neighbor's pool. At the time of the double murder, very little information was released to the public. What was let out to the public was very confusing and no one could understand what had happened. One thing investigators did find at the scene, located about 12 feet from Brian's body, was a blue shoelace with a cinched knot in it. It did not belong to the couple or anyone in the immediate area. It's assumed the suspect dropped it during the altercation. A few months before this incident, Katie Majori had reported a stalker at her place of work, Regal Gas Station, located on 8651 Folsom Boulevard. The investigation of the neighborhood revealed prowling, petty burglary, and stalking. Hallmarks of the ear leading up to an attack. However, it had been months since he hit Rancho Cordova. At the time of the attack, the link to the ear had not been made. However, there were two suspects that had been seen walking on La Gloria. The description of the suspect was in his mid-twenties, short brown hair, slender build, about 160 pounds, and 6 foot to 6 foot 2 inches tall. He was wearing a brown leather jacket with a peanut-shaped stain on the lower right side and the back. He wore dark pants and soft shoes. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. After the incident, police found several more witnesses who must have seen the man escape as he crossed through many neighbors' yards on his long escape route. Sketches would later be revised based on the conglomerate of information being pieced together. Some people had seen a man wearing a dark ski mask running through their yard. Others saw a man in a jacket carrying a football-sized cloth object in his hand. The mask, perhaps. Others reported a man covering his face with his jacket. The big thing that doesn't line up is the description of six feet tall. Other than that, all other things seem to line up to it being the ear. The first two suspects that were being reported in the papers were quietly eliminated shortly after the event, but police still held their reservation. A neighbor that witnessed the encounter between the neighbor and the ear after he hops the gate at the beginning of his escape told investigators she witnessed that event and revised the description of the suspect to 5'9". This is more in line with the usual description of the ear. Let's break down the murder of the Majoris. 
So based on what had happened, no one really truly knows what actually went down because it's all based off the witness testimony of neighbors and the 10-year-old boy who saw the murder go down, which imagine what that was like. You hear a noise out in your yard, look out the window and see somebody get shot. Holy cow. But essentially, uh, based on some of the research I've done and just thinking about it a little bit, it sure seems like their dog must have gotten off lead either hearing or sensing somebody in that backyard. Something drew that dog over there, and they followed the dog. And some reports that I read said the dog may have been tossed into the swimming pool by the prowler, like, right away. And then when Brian comes up on the prowler, they may have gotten into an altercation based off of the dog being tossed into the pool rather than him being a potential prowler if that makes any sense. And that's what kind of starts it. So kind of like at the beginning of the show, when I talk about the a-hole bowling employee coming over and just starting crap with us, you know, maybe that's how that went down. The prowler just starts crap with them by throwing their dog in the swimming pool, you know? And I don't know what the time lapse is between the amount of time it took the dog to leave and the amount of time it took Brian to catch up to where the dog was. You know, sometimes those little dogs can be pretty quick. and so you know, they go and uh, follow the dog and it's already in the swimming pool because the prowler may not know people are coming. They may just think it's just this random dog that just showed up and just tossed it in the pool. See, it has an affinity for, you know, hurting animals for whatever reason. Right. It makes sense that he threw the dog in the pool and that could have started the argument. I mean, if you're out walking your dog and it gets off lead, it's definitely going to piss you off if somebody grabs your pet and throws it in a pool. I mean, I could see where that immediately starts an argument. Oh, for sure. And, you know, the prowler may not have known that the, you know, majorities were out there and he just taught, sees this dog and's like, get this thing out of my way. It's making a bunch of noise. And I don't want people to see me. You know, I'm out here prowling. Right. So he tosses it in the pool, <laughs> trying to drown it essentially. Um, and then, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of get out of here. But then Brian shows up and then they have an altercation and he ends up shooting him. And so clearly, I think the big takeaway here is that he murdered them because they saw him. Like, they got a look. They saw his full face, hair, everything. Like, Brian clearly saw him. And Brian was a sergeant in the Air Force, and he was a um, a patrolman. I think he was a like, kind of Air Force police, if you will, from what I recall. And, you know, sorry if I'm slightly misspeaking about that, but essentially he had some sort of authority, like kind of police authority type role So he wasn't afraid to confront these people, I guess is what I'm trying to really drive at here. And so he goes up and confronts this guy, you know, no big deal. And then the guy just whips out his gun. It's like, okay, see ya, I'm running, you know, and he takes off and they start chasing. And there was a section of fence, which was described there. It had blown down previously from a storm that had rolled through and the wind had knocked down a section of that fence, you know, prior to this day. And so then, you know, the the majorities come running through and the 10-year-old can witness the actual murder take place. But there's also mention of this stalker at Katie's place of work. What did you make of that? It it sounds like, you know, he may have been stalking her place of work, stalking her in person. But, you know, it could have been a coincidence that they're out walking their dog and they come across this guy again. I, I think it could have been just a case of the wrong place at the wrong time. I think that too. I don't think it had anything to do with the stalker guy that, you know, showed up at her place of business. When that stalker was at her place, he would park in the street across from the gas station and just watch her. And so eventually she goes out and confronts the guy. But when she goes to confront the guy, he sees her coming and then just takes off. 
but then he comes back again like later she eventually just quit because she she didn't feel comfortable there so i thought that was interesting but that's not really the ears mo as far as we know it you know he doesn't go and sit there and stalk people in broad daylight in his car and just sit there and stare at them obviously like he's more of a nighttime prowler hides in your neighborhood watches you that way from what i you know from what we know i mean for all i know it could have been him but i doubt it i have a feeling it was more he was prowling the neighborhood they just happened to have a really really piss poor break you know just that dog took off at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yep. And it all unfolded from there. I think it was just a matter of circumstance at that point. Yeah. And, you know, something else that we haven't really mentioned yet is there was an investigator at the time who had been looking in the Rancho Cordova area in the early 70s. I want to say it was 72 to 73. I could be slightly off there, but roughly around that time period, there was also a a, a cat burglar that was going around and breaking into homes and stealing meaningless things, basically the same MO as the Visalia Ransacker, same MO as the East Area Rapist. And that person died in 1976. And the point of bringing that up is, you know, as this stuff is going on, nobody had been trying to tie in the link of the Cordova cat burglar to the East Area Rapist because the person who had really investigated this heavily had had passed away. And back then, people didn't really talk a whole lot. So nobody like in the area thought this MO matches the Cordova Cats MO as far as the ransacking and rummaging is concerned and the prowling. You know, So nobody ever tried to make that link. But here we are now, 40 years removed, and you know, it's probably more likely than not that he was the Cordova Cat burglar at the time. And so I just thought that was an interesting piece of information that you know, no one's really no one really tied together at the time, but now it's looking highly likely that this one man was causing an awful lot of grief in this community. Yeah. He, (laughs) for lack of better terms, he was all over the place, just raising hell. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, he had to have next to no hobbies outside of work. Like he'd go to work probably make his living. And then literally that night was out like just stirring shit up all night long. I'm glad you said that, too, because my thought was, I was just thinking as you were discussing that, how does a guy even have time to work if he's putting all this time and effort into, you know, doing surveillance on homes and where he's going to attack, and he seems desperate when he says, where's your money? That's the first thing out of his mouth every time, where's your money? I just need to live a few more days, right? I just need food and, you know, I just need to take food to my van and money. I wonder if he even worked at this point. I bet he did. I think the van money, that whole thing is just a ruse. I think he takes your money because why not? He's there. But I think that it's just more about the fear. Like he starts off with, I'm taking your money. Then he takes your money. But then you, then he rapes you. You know, like he gets you almost to a level of comfort with like trying to tell you like, oh no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just here for your money. Give me your money. And then he gets the money. But then he escalates it. It's almost like, that he it's almost like a roller coaster ride of emotions for the victims and i think he's getting off on that like okay he's just here for the money he really is asking for the money i gave him my money but then let's uh, here we go you know and and so there's like that additional level of terror because you start to like as the victim you might start to kind of come off of your extreme fear from the first few minutes of the encounter because you're like okay he asked for money and i gave him money he's going to be gone now and then it escalates and it's like okay um and one last thing I wanted to mention about the Cordova cat. At one point in time, that Cordova cat had phoned a victim in uh, you know, a house that he had broken into and said, I love you. This is your last night to live. 
which I thought that was, you know, interesting. And it is, again, one of those things that the East Area Rapist likes to do is make phone calls to people. It makes sense. Maybe he does work a normal job, but I can't believe he has time to do everything that he does and still work, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're only working eight hours a day, there's 16 more to fill fill your time with, <laughs> you know? True, true. So he he could potentially have a lot of time on his hands. Attack number 31, March 18th, 1978. Stockton, Meadow Avenue. A couple awoke to a bright flashlight shining in their eyes. The man behind the flashlight said, I won't hurt you. Just be quiet. All I want is your money and food so I can live a little longer. I won't hurt you. Just be quiet. He moved the gun to the front of the flashlight so the couple could see it. This is a 357 Magnum, you see, and I'll blow your head off. He forced the couple onto their stomachs and walked over to the man. He put the gun to the man's head and told him to look the other way. He forced the man to put his hands behind his back and then ordered the woman to tie him up. He tossed shoelaces over to the woman and warned her, one move, one flinch, and I'll blow your fucking head off. He then told the woman to take, make the bindings tighter, repeating himself several times. After the man was bound, the female was bound. Then the couple were asked where the money was. The woman replied in her purse in the kitchen, while the male replied on the coffee table in the living room. One squeak of the bed, and you're dead, the intruder snarled. The intruder left the room and the couple could hear him tearing strips of towel out in the living room. He returned to the bedroom, blindfolding the man. When the intruder returned to the couple, he told the man, It isn't there. Where's your wallet? Then, he put the gun to the man's neck. Maybe it's in the kitchen, the man replied. The assailant left the room and returned a few moments later, telling the man to lift his head up, and he proceeded to blindfold him. The man pleaded with the assailant not to gag him, stating he has allergies. The ear hissed at him to shut up. The intruder now ordered the female to get up and forced her down the hallway. Don't look at me or I'll blow your head off. He pushed the gun into her back and led her to the living room. He forced her to her stomach and then bound her ankles and blindfolded her. Then he left and rummaged in the kitchen for a few moments. He walked past the victim bringing dishes to the male in the bedroom. He placed the dishes on the man's back. If I hear these move, I'm going to kill your girlfriend. While placing the gun to the male's head. Then he returned to the woman and asked her, Do you like to fuck? Then he did something a little different. He placed his entire package in her hands rather than just his penis. He also sat on her back rather than squatting over her like the other victims. He told her while she had his package in her hands, make it good. Then he raped her. After the rape, he proceeded to pick up her foot and rub it over his package. Next, he applied suntan lotion around her vagina and then sodomized her. The female would later report he seemed to get off more on anal sex. He never did climax during any of the rape. She also reported he was three inches long at best and he was fully erect. After several times of raping the woman, he placed dishes on her back and told her, one click, one small noise, and he's dead. Then he was gone into the dark of the night. The assailant can be heard at times on the back patio sobbing. Then he was also heard in the garage, where she said it sounded like he was trying to catch his breath. While he was in the garage, the female victim thought that she heard somebody walking on the patio. He was described as a white male, five foot ten and 160 pounds. She thought that he may be around 26 years old, with a small, round pot belly. The male victim said he was six foot one with a strong grip. He wore a black cotton button-up shirt and black leather gloves that had a fur lining. The mask was a full-face ski mask. He was also wearing a shoulder holster on the right side of his chest. He was reported as having an inflection in his voice that may have been a refined Mexican accent and spoke quickly. Leading up to the attack, a week prior to the rape, a white male aged 18 to 22 was seen in the 1900 block of Meadow Avenue. The attack occurred in the 3000 block. The white male had blonde, shoulder-length hair and drove a faded van. He was driving it slowly through the neighborhood looking at homes. 
Two nights before the attack, the daughter of one of those families in the 1900 block thought that she heard somebody in their backyard. She checked but saw nothing. On March 17th, the night before the assault, a neighbor saw a white male, 18 to 19, 5 foot 10, 150 pounds with blonde collar-length hair, clean-shaven, wearing a white t-shirt and Levi's, get out of a 1972, which is an estimate, green Ford Pinto, parked in front of the neighbor's house. He removed a gas can from the trunk and then took off. A similar description and action occurred, and it was witnessed by another neighbor around 11.30 p.m. that night. The same neighbors reportedly saw a flashlight in their yards prior to the attack, around 9.30 p.m. Around 3.30 a.m., the morning of the attack, they heard somebody running down the street and then a car leaving. No one was able to see anything. When the investigators arrived, they found a nylon stocking again with the crotch punched out like he did in a previous attack. He also cried for his mom during this attack again, which was, you know, something he had been doing. And um, on March 16th, I believe that was two days before the attack, the man noticed that the garage door wasn't working properly. And it wasn't like locking all the way. Like you could lock it, but you could still just open it. And he hadn't repaired it yet. And that's the door that the ear came through that night and got inside. So obviously he scouted that house and he either rigged the door to do that or he knew that the door was broken and he just kind of came right in. And then, you know, the items that were taken from the home were um, her driver's license and $13 from the female, $150 in change in two separate change jars. Her earrings, rings, and watch in a high school picture were all stolen. And he also drank two bottles of their beer. So, more of the same, you know, essentially. Um, into the, you know, 30s now in these attacks. And there's a pretty clear MO this guy has. I would love to know where this guy's getting all of his vehicles. It seems like there's been so many different descriptions of so many different vehicles this guy's driving. Is he stealing cars and they're not being, either they're not being reported or just not found? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that he parks far away a lot of times, hides bicycles and stuff like that to get back to his car without being super obvious. And so I think people are, you know, when they're asked questions post-attack, they start reporting all these different things that they saw that didn't seem normal when it's just like, it's harmless, normal behavior from some strange citizen that happened to be there. So I think, like, there just might be a a lot of coincidence and weird vehicles. I can't imagine he actually has that many different vehicles. I really can't. Maybe he did. Maybe he had two or three, but I don't think he had more than that at most. But who knows? I mean, this guy is pretty uh, pretty slick, but I can't imagine unless he's saving up all of his money from his attacks and uh, going and buying new cars every few months. Maybe that's what he's doing. He takes all that money from these attacks and puts a down payment on a new car. It's really hard to say. I just thought that that was a little odd because I, I I know we've described several vehicles, at least a half dozen at this point, different types of vehicles. But like you said, it's it's a witness description. They, they're they trying to jar their memory of what they saw that happened during that time or a couple of days prior. So anything strange could be sticking out in their mind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know how many strange cars I see go up and down my street and my street's just like, it's one road and it's no outlet. Like, and I see weird cars come down here all the time. And if something happened, then I'd start reporting on these strange cars, but I see them every, like all the time. So probably coincidence most times, you know, like, oh yeah, I've seen this white truck that drives up and down my street every once in a while. And then, but this time I saw this green car that came back, but they were both there for normal reasons. You know, it just, it is what it is. And especially in this area in California, it's pretty I mean, these neighborhoods seem pretty packed in, in a lot of cases where there's a lot of cars and traffic and stuff. So I wouldn't be surprised that 
it's just coincidence that we see and hear about some similar vehicles that have probably have nothing to do with this case at all. You know, it's just coincidence. And then there's probably there they probably have nailed the description of you know one or two of them might really be his car. But again, there's so many, so hard to figure out. He's again created a good diversion. Right. I live on a cul-de-sac, and the only time I see strange cars is in the spring when we clean out our garage during spring cleanup, and all these crazy bastards come around and pick up all the scrap out of your trash, and they kick yeah. their kids out of the car to to get all the stuff out of your garbage. <laughs> yes, the dumpster divers. Yes. So, I don't think anything of it. That's only for one week out of the year. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of strange cars on my street, so we get it. We get a good kick out of, we get a good laugh out of some of them, though, because I think last year, my my next door neighbor had a an old riding lawnmower that didn't run anymore, and he pushed it out to the street, and it was like piranha on bloody meat, man. <laughs> there was like three of them out there arguing over who was taking it and who could get it lifted into the back of their truck, so... Oh man, at the last house I lived at, we had that all the time. And so my wife and I just eventually got keen to that. And instead of taking things to the Goodwill, I would just set them at the end of the driveway and we would time it and it would be like two hours tops. That thing was gone. Just no sign on it either. It wouldn't say take it. It We just set it at the end of the driveway. Boom. Someone had it in the back of their truck. Just out. See ya. <laughs> like, hey, this is this is a great service. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to get rid of your stuff. I mean, it, kudos to them for going around and gathering up stuff. They're, I mean, they're recycling it for cash. So, yeah, I don't care. I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Okay, I have a quick confession before we move on here. Oh, this has been two years ago. I think it was two years ago when we had spring cleanup. I threw some stuff out on the curb. One, the first day of spring cleanup and these guys came around and th- they were like lurching around in my driveway and stuff, like digging through trash real slow, looking up to my garage and shit. And I'm like, no, nah, this isn't, you know, I'm okay with them coming and taking the stuff, but you know, when they start looking weird and, you know, looking up at the house, looking back down and stuff, you get a little bit creeped out because you're in the house and there's a strange person walking out the end of your driveway. Sure. Yeah. So, uh. The next day, you see the same cars every day. So the next day, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was a container of some sort that was metal. And I took the lid off of it and I filled it up with a Walmart bag full of dog shit and, clo- <laughs> and closed it. And that same guy, creepy ass dude, came back because he was real thorough about going through the trash. And I observed this. So he's going through it and he took the lid off of that and smushed his hand down in there. And I didn't see the guy the next day. So. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Don't be lurching around the end of my driveway. It's that poop again. (laughs) (laughs) That boy left a flaming bag of poop on my doorstep. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. I hate to do that because they're doing me a favor by getting rid of the shit, but, you know, get it and leave. Don't don't be creepy and stuff. (laughs) No kidding. Well, I got one quick side story that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but it kind of made me laugh and shocked at the same time you and i both worked with a guy at our previous employer and he was a complete asshole no one liked this man he ended up getting fired and (laughs) so i was new to the company and my wife and i had just bought a home and it happened to be in the same neighborhood as this dude who was renting this house that he was living in and you know obviously like i'm tying all these things together kind of like later but he tells me this story one day when I'm at work about his neighbor's dog keeps coming over in his yard and taking a dump and he got really mad about it. 
So he picked up the dog poop and walked over to the neighbor's swimming pool and dumped a whole bag of dog poop into the swimming pool. And that was how he dealt with that guy. (laughs) I don't know that that story necessarily doesn't tie into the story here because we did talk about that prowler throwing the dog in the pool. So there's a a loose relationship there to that story. (laughs) There was something loose and it was in the swimming pool. (laughs) I wouldn't have wanted to go in that pool after that. Oh my God. That was so mean on so many levels. Oh, I know exactly who you're talking about, and that does not surprise me in the least. No, not at all. That guy was such a jerk, but yeah, that's why he didn't last very long. Okay, back to more serious matters here. Let's get back into the the storyline and wrap this up for the week. Attack number 32, March 29th, 1978, Rancho Cordova, Ambassador Drive. Around 3.20 a.m., a man snuck his way into the home of a 32-year-old divorcee. He had removed the molding from a side door, removed a pane of glass, reached inside and opened the deadbolt of the door. A large dog and two children slept inside as the man marched the woman into another room. Her two children fast asleep in the house. He raped her in the other room, returned to check on her twice, and did some rummaging of the home. Then he was gone. She freed herself and phoned for help around 30 minutes after the attack. This attack is disputed by some to not be the work of the year, but it likely is. Attack number 33, April 14th, 1978, Sacramento, Piedmont Drive. A 15-year-old girl had accepted and offered a babysit for a well-known family friend. As the parents were out for a late evening, the girl put the 3-year-old to bed around 9.30 p.m. About 20 minutes later, the girl could hear an extremely loud thumping noise, which was the intruder kicking in the door. He charged at her, wearing his full mask and holding an ice pick in his right hand. Don't move or I'll kill you. Don't talk or say anything, he growled at the girl. He ordered her onto the floor and forced her to put her hands behind her back. Taking a baby blanket, he placed it over her head. The girl pleaded to stop the dog from barking as not to wake the young girl sleeping. He told her no and continued binding her. The victim pleaded with the man, trying to see what he wanted. He said he wasn't going to hurt her. He just wants money and he'll leave. Then he left the room and began rummaging through the house. She could hear him opening and closing doors and drawers. He came back and blindfolded her. Then he squatted down by her and told her, don't move, be quiet. He placed the barrel of his gun to her head and turned her over onto her back, untied her ankles, and began unzipping her pants. The girl asked what he was doing, to which he replied, Be quiet or I'll kill you. The attacker pulled her pants and underwear off, then lifted her blouse. Keep quiet. He pushed her legs apart. Relax or I'll kill you. I wanted to rape you for a long time, he said. He began raping her, then the phone started ringing. He became upset. He got up and left after the phone was done ringing. Once he returned, he began rubbing lotion on her and slowly removed her socks. Relax. Don't scream or yell or I'll kill you, he hissed. The phone rang again. He escorted her over to the phone and forced her to answer it. She said hello, but then he hung up the phone. The caller was actually the child's mother from whom she was babysitting. When no one would answer, she called the girl's father to let him know something wasn't right. Next, he ordered her to touch his penis and place it in her hands. The phone rang out again. Becoming more agitated, he took the girl out onto the patio and attempted to rape her, but a car's headlights illuminated the front of the home. Who's there? A voice shouted. Dad? She whispered quietly. By this point, the intruder was now gone. Following the attack, a K-9 unit and helicopter were deployed to the area. The young girl had been receiving hang-up phone calls for several weeks at her home. She also received a call where the caller said, Let me sell you out. The last of the calls came two weeks prior to the assault. The victim's sister had answered the phone, and a male voice said, I've fucked your sister. The strange thing is that the victim never received any strange calls while babysitting at that house in the past. 
The description was relatively similar to the past descriptions. The victim in this case was a virgin, and during examination after the sexual assault, they reported her hymen was never broken and that no penetration had been accomplished. The following day, a witness called in to report that she had seen a strange man near a local fishing spot, Minnow Hole, around 10.30 p.m. the night of the attack. As they left the fishing spot to head up to their car, they saw a strange man jogging, and he said to them, Did you catch any fish? She replied, No, to which the jogger replied, Oh, my wife's going to be mad. The witness said the man was not wearing appropriate jogging clothes and appeared to be out of breath. He was described as a white male, about 25 years old, 5'8", medium build, mid-neck, brown hair, and a mustache. He was wearing a light-colored shirt. So, that tie into your story, he was too small to break the hymen in this case, which was, you know, kind of funny that you had said that story earlier, and then here's the very end of this narrative is basically that exact scenario. And then the one other thing I wanted to talk about here was that how he stalked her for a while at her home, but then somehow knew that she was at this other house. And so there's a lot of speculation as to how, like, how did he know that she was going to go over there? And I wonder, and I couldn't find anything about it, but I wonder if they had the party line situation and he was somehow listening in on their phone conversations for a while and just kind of started to know the plans over the, you know, those few, few days he was probably hanging out behind her house, you know, or something like that. Yeah, it could very well be. I mean, that's the easiest way to figure out what's going on is if you're just snooping on the party line and listening to everybody's conversations. Yeah, and so it was just interesting because then he ends up at the, I mean, I don't think the neighbor or the, um, I don't think the house she was babysitting at was all too far away from her home, if I recall. And so, you know, it's possible that he knew that or watched and saw her leave and just kind of followed, which would be weird. Um, But he had to have some idea that she babysat at that home, I think. Yeah, because he even called out and said, I've wanted to do this for a while. So he, it sounded like he'd been stalking her for quite some time and knew, knew exactly what was, what was going on and where she would be. Yeah, the only thing, though, about that is he does say that to people in other attacks and has no idea who they are. <laughs> you know, like he'll say things like that just to scare you. And so I don't know. It's hard to say because he's very good at this red herring kind of stuff where he just throws things out there. But in this case, she had received the hangout phone call, so I tend to believe what he was saying. In that regard, you know, it just seems like it makes some sense in this case that he really did stalk her for a while. So I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say, but I I believe that he somehow knew that she was going to be babysitting. I firmly believe that he either had some way of listening in on their phone line or something and was able to know the plans. And do you think he followed him all the way to that fishing spot? Well, he didn't follow that. That was witnesses in the fishing. Like he was escaping from the attack and crossed that fishing spot. And people happened to see him as they were coming out of the fishing spot to go get in their car. Okay. That makes sense. Sorry. No, no, no problem. Yeah. So yeah, he was, that was on his escape route, which I did want to talk about that anyway. So Minnow Hole is actually pretty far away. So this guy may have had absolutely nothing to do with the attack because, you know, I was reading some things and Minnow Hole is quite a distance. There's no real reason that he needed to be out there. I mean, he could have been. It could have been him. It was strange and something to note. Uh, but, I mean, that guy had to be, I mean, it was pretty pretty far out, you know, a couple miles away from what I, from what I read. So for him to go all, that far to get away, he could have just simply to get away from the scene being that the car came and the phone was ringing and maybe he felt extra paranoid and felt like he really needed to distance himself from the crime scene and then come back to his car later, like, that could have been a thing. Yeah, it does sound really weird, too, that he did, didn't look like he had the appropriate running clothes on, and he was super out of breath. So, I mean, that the eyewitness of that that person, whoever that might have been, next to Mental Hole running by, I mean, 
It makes sense from that description. Yeah, it could have been, you know, one of those things where just that person heard the story on the news or whatever of the attack and then thought about that night and thought that was strange and reported something that was just coincidental. Like I just coincidentally ran across some guy who just seemed kind of strange that night. So I think I'll just report it to be safer than sorry, which, you know, I can see that happening, you know, especially with the amount of attacks that have been going on around there. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to report this now, you know, and I can't imagine the ear making conversation with people like that though you know even in some of these cases where they say they see some strange guy and he says something to you i just can't imagine i mean maybe he does but being that he tries to conceal his voice so much during attacks because he has a high-pitched voice like i just can't imagine that you know he's out there talking to people on his escape (laughs) you know he's aware he's clearly aware he has a very unique voice right yeah i don't know Maybe he's just running by and trying to say, thinking to himself, I I really need to say something, so maybe I don't look as out of place as I'm running by in my normal street clothes and clearly out of breath. Right. Well, we'll see how out of place he is next time. Stay safe. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.,